rootslandnation.com Wear your culture. 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 Attention, le palais des festivals fermera ses portes dans 30 minutes. Henry, we're going back to the hotel. Are you coming? No, I'll just chill out a little longer and close up the booth and okay. straighten up things. Later then. Okay, I'll see you later on. Funny, you don't look like a Marley. No, I'm not a Marley. I just work for them in Kingston. You don't sound like you come from Kingston, Jamaica. No, no, I'm not from Kingston. I'm actually from Long Island, New York. I'm just working there now. So Tough Gong's got a white kid from New York representing their booth in France? Well, maybe the Marleys don't judge me by the color of my skin, but by the content of my character. Don't you listen to reggae? <laughs> I'm sure there's a story behind that. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, I got a story for you, too. You do? My name is Matthew Kletter, an attorney from New York. Nice to meet you, Matthew. I'm Henry. I represent the biggest reggae star in the world right now. You want to have dinner? Well, if you represent the biggest reggae artist in the world, you can pay. These south of France prices are killing me. Uh, the guy's right, just discovered the world. Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica. From a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. Something I learned early on in the music business is that people love a story as much as they love a song. Not everyone can sing, but everyone has a story. Some people like telling theirs. Others, you kind of have to coax it out of them. And you know, the only thing that people like more than someone who can tell a story is someone who can listen to one, who can just sit still and be silent. Conversations are a lot like music. And my friend Deadly Headley, the saxophone legend, used to always say, it's not the beat or the musical notes that make people dance. It's the spaces in between them. In the summer of 1993, there was no reggae song making people dance, like the hip-hop-infused dancehall club banger titled Informer. And no reggae singer tearing up the international pop charts like a 24-year-old white reggae rapper from Toronto, Canada, named Darren Kenneth O'Brien, better known as Snow. So there I sat, silently in a noisy cafe in the south of France, listening to Matthew Kletter, the attorney for the world's biggest reggae star. So Henry, I represent Snow, and you know his last album was off the charts. Yeah, so you keep telling me. Informer spent two months as a number one Billboard hit. Well, seven weeks, but who's counting? It was a good run. It was insane. The sun had just set over the Mediterranean, and the lights on the Boulevard de la Croisette had just started to shine, illuminating the luxury hotels and the city's famed upscale boutiques. The tall palm trees that line the Côte d'Azur's most famous street were swaying in the breeze, and the shadows created by the streetlights made it look like they were dancing. The sound of the ocean was drowned out by the traffic. Corniches and countaches go barely noticed as car stereos compete for the attention of the European beauties 
strolling by armed with shopping bags in both hands. I sat across from Mr. Kletter, enjoying an entrecote and steak fleet, although the waitress did look a little perturbed when I asked for a bottle of ketchup. Since arriving in the south of France, I had been surviving on chocolate croissants and takeout pizza from Smalto's, a little brick oven place across from our three-star hotel. Tufgong didn't give us much of a budget for food or lodging, but I was so honored and excited that Sidella Marley asked me to represent her company at Midham, the music industry's most prestigious conference. I would have paid my own way. And meanwhile, the Tufgong booth was the hit of the show. Draped in red, gold, and green, Marley and Rasta flags flying high, and our CD player had Bob on permanent loop. Everyone, from international executives, right down to their assistants, felt their duty to stop by and express a heartfelt love and admiration for the king of reggae and his music. In the early 90s, Tufgong was looking to rebrand with Bob's daughter Sidella at the helm, and having a presence at Midem was a way to introduce the Tufgong label to the world. Remind everyone, although Bob was gone, his dream was still alive, and Tufgong Records was open for business. Like everything else here in Cannes, only so much gets done within the halls of the Palais de la Festival, where the actual conference takes place. It's at the private dinners and lavish after-parties where the real deals get done. So there's been a little backlash, obviously, because of his race. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. And this time around, we decided we want to record his album in Jamaica. Okay, that's a good idea by the label. Great political move. The only problem is management's a little nervous about coming down to Jamaica. Uh-huh. They've heard all sorts of stories about they can't trust anybody, and it's dangerous. Well, it can be. That's where you come in. You could be the perfect person to help arrange everything down there. Oh, I can. You're obviously familiar with Kingston and the way the music business runs. Okay. And you're from New York. They'll feel comfortable around you and trust well, you. Well... Like everything else, pros and cons. I mean, it is a great opportunity for me, but on the other hand, there's a lot of resentment in Jamaica. He's not the most popular guy. You know, I have to pick and choose my allies wisely. Don't make any decisions now. Just think about it. And you call me up in New York. All right. In the meantime, order anything you want on the menu. I was savvy enough to read between Mr. Kletter's lines. During my stint in Kingston, I had witnessed firsthand how these major labels would bring down their foreign artists to record in Jamaica often as a way of lending the project some street credibility. Sometimes it was at the behest of the singer or band, wanting to capture that raw, authentic Jamaican vibe, fully immerse themselves into the reggae lifestyle, like the Rolling Stones did on their album Goat's Head Soup. However, more often than not, it was a publicity stunt, thought out by some clever PR department at a label, in order to divert any potential backlash or claims of cultural appropriation before they arose, especially if it was a white artist or group. The usual M.O. was the same. A spontaneous photo op taken with Jamaican talent fawning over the singer, then a payoff to a local reporter for a puff piece in the Gleaner or the Star about how committed the artist is to preserving the culture. And last but not least, the prerequisite music video shoot on the island showing how beloved and enamored the locals are with singer XYZ, after which they can return back home with full multimedia evidence how they came, saw, and conquered the birthplace of reggae. But the truth was, Snow was already an international superstar. He didn't really need credibility to sell records. 
My guess is that he wanted it, and I respected that. And as far as what management wanted from me, that was simple. They needed a fixer, someone they could trust, give them the lay of the land, take them around to the studios and introduce them to the producers and the talent. A gig that I'm sure they didn't plan on paying me a cent for, thinking that I'm a young producer so desperate to get in with a platinum artist that I'd do anything to be on the album. In which case, they were absolutely right. Hey, I knew there was a pecking order. And after all, Jamaica had an abundance of producers, with bigger names and more talent than me, that were all willing to stand in line to work on Snow's new album. So if I was going to get my chance to appear on the record, I'd have to schmooze my way on. I was desperate for my break, but there was no way I was going to let Mr. Kletter know that. These lawyers and record labels are like sharks. They can sense blood in the water from miles away. And while Matthew may have thought he represented the biggest reggae singer in the world, I was in France rolling with the Marleys. And I was the one here actually representing the biggest reggae star in the world. La Croisette was a long way from Kingston. But I was just as comfortable at a sidewalk cafe in Cannes as I was at a jerk chicken stand on Constant Spring Road. My father was from France. I spent summers with family just 30 minutes up the road in a small town called Joan Lapin. So this was my turf. I was dead broke. Wasn't even sure if my credit card would even go through. But I took a chance and pulled it out anyway and paid for dinner that night. I wanted them all to know that I wasn't looking for any handouts or favors, that I knew my value, and I knew that they knew my value. And you know what? I never had to call anyone. They called me first. And within no time, me and Harris, my ragamuffin second-in-command, were picking up Snow's managers, David Ang and Steve Salem, at Norman Manley Airport in Port Royal, and giving them the grand tour of Kingston City, but as my friend Harris reminded me, remember what happens when you swim with sharks. They're playful until they're hungry. Throughout the 70s and 80s, reggae amassed a large international following, but only saw sporadic commercial success on the Billboard pop charts. These were hits recorded and sung by mostly rock singers in bands. Eric Clapton, The Police, UB40, Blondie, whose name pretty much sums it all up. Most of the number ones, tepid cover versions of previous hits, or reggae rock hybrids performed in the more palatable, laid-back style of roots reggae that mainstream audiences had become accustomed to. It wasn't until 1990, with the soulful reggae R&B crossover close to you, featuring Maxi Priest and Shaba Ranks when a Jamaican finally reached number one on the Billboard Top 100. That year also marked a new era, the age of dancehall music, the untethered, hypersonic half-brother to its much more musically mellow sibling, Roots Reggae. Born and cultivated on the same Kingston streets, but the two decades that separated these kin was enough time to completely transform the musical and social landscape of Kingston's inner cities. The hope and determination to escape ghetto life, an essential theme to early reggae, had eroded over time, replaced with darkness and despair. All this pent-up rage corresponded musically with the introduction and advent of drum machines 
and more up-tempo, computer-generated digital rhythms, making studio time affordable and recording sessions accessible to poor and neglected inner-city youth for the very first time. Now, they were able to tell their stories, and like a ticking time bomb, there was an explosion of music, songs with lyrics depicting the raw and unfiltered ghetto life, with guns, gangsters, and girls, the preferred subject matter to a generation more concerned with living for the moment than contemplating their future. For some, dancehall was too realistic, but for an entire international audience, it connected to a bitterness and frustration that had been burning inside them as well. Like punk rock or grunge or hip-hop, it had a street energy that transcended cultural and physical boundaries. And one angry young man, tintillated by this aggressive dancehall sensibility, was Darren Kenneth O'Brien, born on October 30th, 1969, raised in Allenbury Gardens, located in North Toronto, a poorly managed and run-down public housing project in a mostly Irish neighborhood that lacked opportunity, infrastructure, and social resources of any kind. So it was only natural that it became a breeding ground for disheartened and embittered youth who, with no way out, turned to gangs and violence, abused alcohol and drugs. Like many of his friends, Darren spent his teenage years rebelling, drinking, smoking, fighting. By the time he reached his early 20s, he had a long rap sheet and had been incarcerated twice for violent offenses, including attempted murder. But something happened in that North Toronto neighborhood in the late 80s that would change Darren O'Brien's life forever. Jamaican immigrants started moving in. Thanks to the more liberal immigration policies enacted by the Trudeau government. And with the influx of Jamaicans came their culture, their food, their fashion, and most importantly to a young Darren, their music. He began listening to scratchy Jamaican mixtapes, struggling to make out lyrics chatted by dancehall stars of the 80s, like Tenorsaur, Nitty Gritty, Supercat. And when he could finally understand what they were saying, he realized these lyrics were about his life in the projects, the struggle, the fight to survive, and the never-ending battle to escape. He became obsessed with dancehall music and started learning patois through the songs. It became a way for him to channel his anger and focus on something positive. And for the very first time in Darren's life, he saw a way out. Snow wrote that catchy hook-heavy hit Informer while he was incarcerated, a song that takes aim at the snitch who landed him behind bars. He would eventually be exonerated for that crime, but not before viewing the video for Informer for the very first time while he was behind bars. Having recorded the single and video, while out on probation, the song rockets to number one on the Billboard charts before he's even released. Snow is plucked right out of prison into superstardom. That derelict kid from the Toronto Projects is immediately thrust into the spotlight. Informer is such an international success. It makes the Guinness Book of World Records for simultaneously being a number one song in over 30 different countries. And that's something that was never done before. 
Now comes the hard part, dealing with the success and the stress of having to follow it up with another hit song, proving to yourself and the world that it was no fluke, that you're no one-hit wonder, overcoming what the industry calls the sophomore slump. And the only way to accomplish this, as Steely Dan says, you go back, Jack, and do it again. But it actually may be another line in that song that may better pertain to snow. Your black cards can make you money, so you hide them when you're able. In the land of milk and honey, you must put them on the table. When Snow's advance team, David and Steve, came to Kingston, we went by all the studios and met with all their owners. The Marleys at Tough Gong, Gussie Clark at Anchor Music, Donovan Germain at Penthouse Records. But in the end, it was Roy Francis at Mixing Lab Studios that won out. And it wasn't because the studio was sonically or technically superior to any of the others. Although it was a proven hitmaker and home to Sly and Robbie, the reggae super producers. But Roy Francis closed the deal by promising David and Steve to finish an uncompleted apartment on the premises, directly above the recording studio. For Snow and crew, by the time they arrived on the island, a three-bedroom residence with full kitchen and a pre-production room. I think that management cared more about the idea of having Snow on a short leash than which studio he recorded at. Knowing his history and his tendency for getting into trouble, having him live where he worked would be a godsend, especially a compound that had a 24-hour gate guard. And even better to keep their artist in check, on one of their initial trips, management linked up with Too Tall, Kingston's most notorious bouncer and bodyguard, to work as security for Snow when he arrived. Harris and I were all too familiar with Too Tall, especially from his stint as bouncer at Godfather's, a new Kingston nightclub that was the hotspot for A-list Jamaican celebrities throughout the 90s. His main charge at Godfather's was working the door and patting down the Dons and their crew for concealed weapons. He was also known for ejecting one or two drunk uptown kids for harassing the dance hall girls. But as far as I can tell, his main job was just looking like a mean mother effer. I mean, he was a Jamaican version of The Rock before there was even an American version. Tall, muscular, right down to the clean-shaven, polished, bald head. And how is it that guys like Too Tall manage to find the tightest shirts on the planet? And how do they even get in them? And that menacing look was only part of his persona. There were also the never-ending rumors about his past. Everything from him being a former special ops for the U.S. Army to an enforcer for a gang at Rikers Island Prison. You know, when I thought about it, I wasn't really sure if Too Tall was hired to protect Snow from any perceived threats or harm from Jamaicans. I thought maybe Too Tall was there to protect Snow from Snow, a job perhaps even more daunting than dealing with the Jamaican gangsters and bad men. The stage was set for an Irish hoodlum and his gang of thugs to descend upon a third world country and wreak havoc, enabled by managers and record companies that are willing to give him anything and willing to do whatever it takes for a hit song? The real question was, 
What was I willing to do? RootslandNation.com We're your culture.